Matthew chapter 25, we've been looking the last two Sundays at the parable of the ten virgins, the wise and the foolish virgins, and the exhortation to watch, therefore, in the light of the truths presented in this, these two chapters, Jesus says, watch or wait upon the Lord. Cultivate that personal life in God, in your, in your private life. Establish that personal history in the Lord in a greater way in your personal life. I'm going to just read the parable again for the third Sunday in a row and comment a little bit on it and bring it to the uh, establish uh, several new points after a, a, a brief review. Then the kingdom of heaven, verse 1, shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and they went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. Those, of the, uh, those who were foolish took their lamps, but they took no oil with them. The wise ones took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out and meet him. Then all those virgins arose, trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. Verse 9, But the wise answered and said, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to, to those that sell and acquire or buy for yourself. Verse 10, And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding. The door was shut. And afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. The Lord answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I don't know you. Verse 13, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Again, just in way of review, the general context is Matthew 24 and 25. It's one message. You need to read the two chapters together. Though this passage has its application for every generation since the first coming, it has its particular application. It, ha it has its highest application in the mind of Jesus in the generation that He returns. I believe that's this generation, whether five years or fifty years, I don't know, but I believe we are in the generation of which the Lord returns, which is the unique and distinct context of Matthew 24 and 25. This parable was spoken for all generations, but particularly it applies to the events surrounding the coming of the Lord in the final generation. There's three times that Jesus exhorts the people to watch before Him. Each of the three exhortations apply to a different arena of our own lives. The exhortation to watch in verse 13. This is actually the second exhortation. He's calling the people to establish time, a priority of time in their life, where they watch before the Lord. And the phrase, the watch of the Lord, is a phrase that is established in the Old and the New Testament. It's an exhortation that the prophets as well as the apostles and the Lord Himself gave the people of God to watch, to establish, if you will, the watch of the Lord in your own personal life. That's to avail yourself, to present yourself before the Lord in a context of worship and the Word of God. And... My personal life, what, what I do, and I'll just exhort you from the, uh, how the Lord has led me in this. It's what I believe to be a practical application is that I try to make time. Well, I don't try to. I do make time. I don't always make enough time. Where I come before the Lord in an attitude of worship. And I open the Word of God. And I read the Word of God in a dialogue fashion before the Lord. I turn the written Word of God, regardless what passage I am, into a running conversation with Jesus. I talk to Him and ask Him to strengthen me or establish me or to help me or to give revelation and insight into whatever subject the Word of God is talking. I turn it into a conversation with a person in an attitude of worship. And in that attitude of worship, sometimes I, there's actual worship music going on. Sometimes I'm at home with the worship tape on. Sometimes I'm at a prayer meeting down at the office building. We have prayer meetings on a regular basis down at the office building of which you're all invited to attend. Sometimes it's, 
It's uh, even during the worship context here. I'll just open the Word of God while we're worshiping the Sunday night meetings. We have once a month a special uh, a celebration night where we worship two or three hours. Uh, particularly is the Friday night watch of the Lord. We call it the watch of the Lord using this very terminology. The exhortation Jesus gave His leaders in the end times and the people where we come from 9 o'clock to 2 o'clock in the morning for five hours. You're invited to come for a little bit of it or all of it. You can bring your children. Sometimes you have young pe- little young ones sleeping on the floor. And some people come for an hour. Some come for the whole five. And we have worship teams. Sometimes we just have a worship tape on. Typically uh, these days now we have worship teams in place. And the people, we have 50 to 100 people sitting in the building. And they're reading the Word of God and just intermittently stopping to worship along with the worship team and then engaging back in the Word of God. And they'll do that for an hour or two, three, four, five hours on Friday nights. The watch of the Lord. In that context of worshiping with the Word of God going through our heart, we see the prophetic and intercession flow forth. We have times in that five-hour watch where we have intercession where different ones will come to the microphone and pray for the purpose of God to be established. But mostly, we're worshiping and opening the Word and gazing on the heart and just, I love you, I love you, I love you, and then reading the Word, turning it into conversation. That's how I understand to be a personal application of the watch. The watch of the Lord. It's, a, it's, a, it's developing your own personal life in God, your own personal history in the Lord, for which the, the symbolism of oil is about. It's, it's talking about developing your own history in the Holy Spirit with the Lord. Something that nobody else can do for you. Your devoted wife can't establish a history in God with you and God. You have to do that. Your parents can't. Your devoted children can't. Your pastors can't. Your friendship group leaders can't. Your friends can't. Only you can establish and cultivate oil in your own life. And that oil is is linked to verse 13, watching, growing in your relationship to the Lord. I have no question uh, as to the fact that the oil is specifically related to something he gave earlier that day. That very day he gave the parable of Matthew 22. And it was the wedding parable. This is the second wedding parable he gave in the same day. The closing day of his public ministry. Jesus ended his public ministry in Matthew 21, 22, 23. 24, 25, it's the final day, it's the Tuesday before the cross. And he ends it with two public, I mean two parables about the wedding. And in Matthew 22, verse 37, he gives that great proclamation. Be wholehearted lovers of God, the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. That's what the oil is about. The oil is growing in the first commandment of which he established earlier that day, preaching to the masses. Getting the oil is about growing in our in an enlarged capacity to experience an impartation of the love of God to our hearts. You grow in oil in as much as you grow in the first commandment. You grow in oil in as much as you grow in your capacity to receive an impartation of the Lord's love to you and an impartation of the Father's love for His own Son. It takes God to love God. That's how we grow in oil. We don't grow in oil particularly. The oil here is not talking about how many miracles you do or how much anointing is upon your ministry. That's what the lamp uh, metaphor is about or symbolism. The lamp is talking about the intensity of your ministry. The oil is about the personal life in this context. Beloved, it's not about how big the crowds are. It's about how big our heart is in God. It's about this growing tenderness in the first commandment. There are seasons in my life where I have found my heart shrinking instead of increasing in tenderness. I have had times of tenderness and and loving the Lord where the first commandment was taking root in my heart and it it was growing and my tenderness was increasing. My capacity to feel loved from God, my capacity to love God back by the impartation of the Spirit was growing and then I would get busy and things would happen and my capacities in these ways would shrink. And the Lord says, get oil in your lamp, get oil in your life, grow in the first commandment. That's what the oil is all about. He made it clear earlier that very day when he gave the parable in Matthew 22. And then the statement in verse 37, the great commandment. Well, in verse 13, he gives the method to where we grow in oil. He gives us the simple methodology, if you will, of how to grow in tenderness and how our hearts are enlarged in the first commandment. Enlarging our heart is the ability to feel loved 
and the ability to give love back. And both of them are God-given capacities. It says, watch, avail yourself, make time in your schedules. And there's many parables where they all come with the excuses why they don't have time. Jesus says, you can't afford not to have time, especially in the generation that he returns and all the dramatic events. You know, it's really easy to get a whole bunch of people around you, pat you on the back. You give them your excuses, they give you their excuses. You all affirm one another. The excuses seem valid, but beloved, you end up with no oil in your lamp at the end of the age. I'm not looking for people to help validate and verify why it's too difficult. I want to be around people that challenge me to press through the obstacles to get oil in my lamp, to get oil in my life. Watch, therefore, verse 13. Develop... Take time to develop your life in God. Don't go on your memory of your, your relationship with God five years ago. There's people in this room right now that had such seasons of tenderness five years ago. But beloved, those seasons of tenderness are long gone. Your heart is shrunk. You can't hardly discern any of the impulses of the love of God moving in your heart. Don't go on the memory of five years ago. You want oil now in your lamp. Don't be put to sleep by the memory of what you had yesteryears. Today is the day of salvation. And that's what Jesus is urging them to do. Some people don't get oil on their lap. They say, I don't know how. Beloved, it's as simple as breathing. And what I mean by that, you don't need a ten-part sermon on how to meditate on the Word. Open the Bible. Get in a context of worship. Start reading and just say, God, I love you. Show me. And the Holy Spirit is so skilled at taking the uninformed and informing them how to love Jesus. He loves it. It's what he does best, and it's what he enjoys most. Give him a shot at your heart. Put a big bullseye on your heart and say, me, hit me, Holy Spirit. He says, I'd love to. You make yourself vulnerable to me. You give me a shot at it. I am so competent at taking the uninformed, the unskilled. I'm so skilled at it. Give me a shot at it, and I will make you a lover of God. Every mature lover of God started off as a stumbling young infant in the things of love. And I appreciate books, and I appreciate teachings and seminars on how to grow in this. But don't wait for some special day and some special hour. Start today. Just open your Bible and say, put a little worship music on. If that helps you, that helps me sometimes. Sometimes it distracts me. Sometimes it really helps me. And I like to just stop and just say, oh, just flow with the music, and then go right back to the chapter I'm at. You say, I don't know where to begin. Begin in Matthew 1. Go right to the book of Revelation. When you get to Revelation, begin in Matthew 1 again and do that for a few years, and that's just a good beginning. There really is nothing to it. And just start reading it. The passages you don't understand, don't worry about them. The ones you do understand, turn them into conversation. Oh, Jesus, show me what you mean by this. Help me do this. Come and bring my heart into this. It may be a little rough for a few months if you're new at it, but oil will grow in time. The Holy Spirit is so good at doing this. I remember when I was 18 years old and I began an aggressive seeking to have an aggressive devotional life. I remember how overwhelmed I was. I, a year or two later, it was still barren and boring, and I couldn't sort my way through it. And I remember saying out loud, with a broken heart, with tears, I remember this vividly, saying, I'll be the only man that never likes prayer and never understands the Word. I know it. I know it. I will be the only one that will never, ever learn to flow in God, in the Word of God. The Word of God was boring, confusing. My heart seemed like there was an iron trap on it. My heart didn't move at all when I read the Word. I couldn't move at all in prayer. It was locked up, and the Lord just would whisper in my heart. I didn't hear it, but just the exhortations of the Word. Just keep coming, Mike. Keep coming. Keep coming. I didn't really hear it back then, but just through the folks around me and books I was reading, I just said, I, I don't know what to do. I'm going to keep coming back. Well, after a few years, all of a sudden, a verse or two begin to spring up. Wow, a little inspiration on it. And some years passed, and all of a sudden, it began to be like a river flowing on the inside. I said, Lord, what's that? He said, I'm so good at taking people and teaching them how to love Jesus. Make yourself vulnerable. Expose your heart to me and see what I won't do in the lives of those that will open themselves to me. Watch, therefore, before the Lord. Establish the watch of the Lord in your life. Now, he's giving it in Matthew 25 in the context of having lamps or ministries at the end of the age that have reality and power in them. Verse 3 and 4, he talks about the foolish virgins who didn't take oil. They were so occupied in ministering and shining their lamps, they didn't cultivate a present tense reality with Jesus. They were operating 
off of yesterday's oil. They were operating in 1997 on the reality they entered into in 92. They were going on yesterday's manna, and it was upholding them for a season. Beloved, if you're going to minister in 1997, get oil in 1997. Don't just because a few people are responding to you. Don't be content. Keep current with God because you're created first to be a lover of God even before you're a lamp of ministry to others. That's how you've been made. Anyway, watch therefore. Don't be one of the foolish ministries of verse 2. Of verse 3. They had their lamps but they took no oil. But rather be one of the wise ministries who took oil, attended to the issue of oil first. Now he's speaking to leadership, as we talked about in the last two weeks, and I don't want to develop that point again. He says, but related to your ministries, get oil. Get oil in your lamps. Because it says here in verse 8, that the foolish ones in the prophetic hour of the end of the age, when the Messiah is, is revealing himself as the great bridegroom and the tremendous dramatic events at the end of the age it says, the foolish says, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. A lot of lamps are going to go out in the final hours of natural history. A lot of ministries that were running on, you know, 10 year old oil, the Lord is going to allow those ministries, those lamps to go out. He's going to unify His church by fresh oiled ministries who are consumed with the first commandment. He's going to raise up men and women, old ones and young ones of every race and nation that are living in the reality of the first commandment that's dominating their hearts. Those are the lamps that will emerge in the end day church. And they will be unified from all the tribes and streams of the body of Christ because they're lovers of God first instead of debaters and self-promoting ministries. And those self-promoting debater spirit type ministries, which is so many ministries, the Lord's going to let those lamps go out and He's going to unify the body of Christ with wise virgins, with present tense oil pumping in their hearts. They're captured as lovers of God. And though they may have different emphasis and different looks and different streams and different tribes of the body of Christ, there'll be a spirit of unity because they will bear witness to the one another that they're pursuing being wholehearted lovers of God. And that's where the end day church is going to go. A lot of lamps are going to go out. And Jesus is warning them. And this thing is particularly important because the very apostles he's warning in the very passage, the next chapter, become examples of the foolish virgins whose oil was deficient in an hour of crisis. The first exhortation of watching, he gives three exhortations of watching. The first one is in chapter 24, verse 42. Watch therefore. The first time, establish the watch of the Lord in your life. And he's giving it in context to the judgments, the, the temporal judgments that are manifest in the end time church. Verses 36 to 44 is talking about the unique judgments at the end of the age, like unto Moses, uh, Noah. They came suddenly and they took away many in the human race. And the reason, the very first thing he's telling them in verse 42, the watch is related to, there's a dormant offense in the hearts of the body of Christ right now against Jesus in his judgments. Right now, we're, the body of Christ is real kind of uh, under the idea that we're mature in love and we're doing good. But when Jesus begins to show his face, not only as a bridegroom, but as a king and as a judge, there's going to be a lot of adversarial relationship of the church to Jesus as a judge. They're going to draw back and say, we don't know about this judgment stuff, Jesus. And Jesus says, that's who I am. And I'm coming in the truth of who I am. And he is a judge too. His temporal judgments are going to be loosed across the earth. One third of the human race is going to be cut off prematurely by tragedies. As I said last week, judgment's just a doctrine until judgment has a name and face on it related to your relational uh, circles. Until it's somebody you love, judgment's just a doctrine. But when it's somebody that you love, it has a whole different feel on it, judgment. And right now the body of Christ is is so undiscerning, and I throw myself in this. I'm not saying this is a criticism. I say this is a wake-up statement. We're so undiscerning now. The only courage that we have is in any tragedy to talk about how unfortunate it is that Satan had his way. Beloved, it's not going to be Satan. It's Jesus that's going to kill one-third of the human race at the end of the age. Jesus is. And right now we have an idea that Satan is doing it, and that's a little bit safe. 
But when the word begins to come forth out of Zion, that it's the Lord God and His judgments coming forth, there will be an adornment offense in the people of God that will come to the surface. It will have to be dealt with. Because you can't grow in love. You can't grow in bridal love in the bridegroom generation when you're offended at the bridegroom. And he says, Beloved, watch. Develop a life in me. Know who I am. Cultivate reality. Because when my judgments come, woe to you if you're offended at me in the midst of my judgments. How will you ever grow in love if you're angry at me? There's a dormant hostility in the world. The world thinks they, well, you know, Jesus is a nice prophet, teacher, is one of the religions. They hate the Son of God. It's just dormant. And Jesus says, when my judgments are manifest, the rage in the human spirit, when His judgments come forth, will be in full bloom. And they will resist Him and everyone who stands with Him. There's a rage in the unbelievers. And there's an offense in believers. And the antidote, the answer in verse 42, watch therefore before it becomes personal and it's more difficult for you to worship me in the day of judgment. Beloved, this is the hour to watch. It really is. It's the hour to watch in terms of overcoming offense towards Jesus. That's the first exhortation, chapter 24, verse 42. The second exhortation to watch, chapter 25, verse 13. Because there's going to be a transition of ministries. Lots of lamps are going out, and only lamps with reality will shine and penetrate the darkness in the end of the age. The darkness will be so dark. Satan's persecution against the church. The vomiting out of hell of immorality and perversion worldwide. The, the counterfeit passions that will cover the earth like no time in history. It's going to take a true voice coming from the church to challenge this and to prevail over it. And such a voice will come because the passion, the superior pleasure of knowing God is sufficient for the temptation of the great counterfeit explosion of false passion at the end of the age. The raging hunger in the body of Christ is going to demand men and women with ministries that have reality. So the second exhortation to watch, chapter 25, verse 13, is in the context of ministry. Lots of lamps are going out. I'm warning you now. And a lot of you will be uh, complaining and confused. You better get reality now if you want to stand in your God-ordained place at the end of the age as a lamp, as, as a lamp of God, a light bearer. So exhortation number one. Overcome offense towards God when he, when he shows himself differently than we're expecting. Exhortation number two, watch, because the need of the hour will be such you need to have reality with God to be a light bearer, a lamp in the end day church. Exhortation number three is in Matthew 26. This time it's to the twelve apostles. Well, that's not accurate. It's to the three apostles, Peter, James, and John. They're in the garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, verse 36, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's Peter, James, and John, you can read from the context. And Jesus is telling them in verse 41, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The third exhortation to watch is related to personal compromise. The first one is our propensity to be offended at God when He shows Himself different than we expect. The second one is because there's going to be a great division of the ministries at the end time church. And the third one is because the crisis will present personal temptations to compromise and to the fear of man. And there's many types of compromise here. This one was rooted in fear. All compromise isn't, but much compromise is. He's exhorting them to watch so they don't yield to personal compromise. The third exhortation to watch in these three chapters. What's the, what's the larger context here? It starts in verse 30. When they'd sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. This is interesting. The last week, Jesus went regularly to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is called that because it was, it was on a mount, and it was, there was a, a grove of olive trees. There was a dense grove. There was multitudes of olive trees. And, of course, we know that olive trees were the chief source of oil. It's not an accident that, they, that Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives, which was called in that day, it was... Uh, 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 you know, they referred to the Mount of Olives, several different commentaries say it different, as the Mount of Oil, is what one commentator said. That was, it was commonly referred to as the Place of Oil or the Mount of Oil. Because there were so many olive trees which produced oil in that garden. Do you think it's an accident that Jesus was such penetrating wisdom and foresight in that prophetic spirit? I mean, He is the prophetic spirit. He goes to the Mount of Oil to offer Himself 
for His people. And it's in the very mount of oil that He watches and waits before the Lord for the great crisis of His own life. He goes, to the, he goes to the mount of oil, to the place of oil. I believe it's significant that the very symbolism of, I mean, the, the very usage of the idea of oil is consistent with what Matthew is talking about in Matthew 25. He gets them together. Now, for the second time, he warns them. He warned them at the upper room before they went to the mount. This is the second warning, because I'm going to tell you again, verse 31. All of you are going to stumble, because Judas had already left. And they, some of them were discussing the fate of Judas and how could he do this. He says, before you get too self-righteous, let me get the record straight. The rest of you, the eleven of you, will stumble tonight. Understand, you will stumble. Peter in verse 33 rises up and says, I'll never, never, never stumble. Those other guys are different. I am resolute. I am yours. And Jesus speaks... Uh, a very, very uh, sober warning. And we find it in Luke 22, verse 31. I'll just quote it to you. Luke 22, verse 31. One extra sentence is added that Matthew does not include in the count here. He says, Peter, let me talk about you specifically. You specifically. Satan has asked for you, Peter. Oh, what a terrifying sentence. He goes, Satan has asked for you. For me? What does he want with me? He said he's asked permission from the Father to sift you like wheat. And the Father has granted him permission. And I believe the reason Satan wanted Peter, because Peter had the highest position of authority at that time in the purpose of God. Equaled only by Paul some years later. New levels of God's authority and power. New devils attack. New levels, new devils, Francis Frangipan said some years ago. I love that. He goes, where there's new levels in God, there's new devils. Satan said, I want Peter, the main one. I'm going after him. And in the economy of God, the Lord says, those with greater realms of authority are vulnerable to greater arenas of attack, even by the Lord's design. He says, test him. He will, bear, he will come forth, though he will stumble for a season. Peter says, Satan wants me. He says, he's asked for you, particularly Peter, because he knows who you are as the one with senior authority here. Beloved, I ask you to pray for me. I ask you to pray for the ministries. I ask you to pray for the leadership here, me particularly, the pastors, the friendship group leaders. When you say yes to God as an invitation to stand in a position of authority, you are saying yes to an increase of Satan's attack against you. I don't believe we need to fear the increase, but we need to be sober about the increased attack. Peter throws it off. He says, so what? In essence, he goes, I'm not going to fall. He, he, he stands his ground. Verse 35, I don't care. I'm not falling. Jesus could have said, do you understand who I am and what I just told you, Peter? You're going to fall. And so now the three, Peter, James, and John, in verse 37, they're pulled in secret with Jesus. In verse 38, a very powerful verse, Jesus says to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Stay here and watch with me. Two points. Number one, Jesus said, I, the Son of God, it is necessary that I watch before the Lord. Even in my perfection, I need the watch of the Lord. When you study Jesus' prayer life, beloved, what, what a, a challenge, what a rebuke. The sinless, spotless Son of God needed to live in prayer. Certainly, He enjoyed the fellowship with the Father. But in His humanity, He knew it was necessary that He kept oil in His lamp, if you will. And here's Jesus encountering a great trial. The absolute perfect picture for the apostles, the three, but they didn't take it. He's watching on the Lord. How much more, if he's watching, do we need to watch? He goes, watch with me. They could have said, why are you watching? Because a great trial lies before me. And the thing I told you back in chapter 24, verse 42, he could have said, watch therefore, that you wouldn't be offended. He tells Peter, James, and John, do it with me. The third exhortation to watch. The first one in chapter 24, the second one in chapter 25, the third one here in chapter 26. And this one he repeats three times in a row because they don't get it. It's very, very personal. Watch with me. Verse 41. 
He says it the second time right here in the garden. Watch with me lest you enter into temptation, lest you yield to personal compromise. He says, I know that your spirit is willing, but do you understand how weak your flesh is? Beloved, a lot of people say, well, I'm so committed to the Lord. It's that very commitment that Satan will come to undermine. But it was the very willing spirit that gave those three a false confidence. A religious arrogance, a boasting that they would not stumble without waiting on the Lord. How arrogant in this hour to assume we can stand without waiting. Well, I have a willing spirit. I'm committed to the Lord. The Lord could have said, how much more then do you need to watch? I know that you're willing. Your spirit is willing. But Peter, James, and John, you have no idea how weak your flesh is. You have no idea how weak your flesh is. You're young believers. You don't have a history in God that's very deep in your internal life in the Holy Spirit. They observe many things with Jesus. But in terms of their internal life in God, it was at the very beginning days. He says, your flesh is very weak. If the Lord would give that to his senior apostles, how much more us? Well, Peter's already said, I'm not going to fall. And James and John earlier that week said nearly the same thing. In Matthew 20, verse 22, when Jesus looked at them, when they wanted to be the great ones in the kingdom, we want to be at your right and left. Jesus said, so you want to be at the right and left. He says, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And they said, oh yeah, we can drink that cup. And Jesus looks at them, and, and Peter Peter says, I'm not falling. James and John, earlier in the week, I can drink that cup. He says, you three better watch before the Lord like I am. Well, of course, they didn't. They didn't. And in verse 44, the third time, he pleaded with them. And the very plea that he's giving his leadership in the end-day church, beloved, I believe they are an example of the foolish virgins that Jesus just talked about that very night. Well, actually, it was two days earlier. On the Tuesday, and this is the Thursday night. They become examples of those that did not watch. Oh, I love, I love the example, the words and the example of Peter after he stumbled and after he fell. In Acts chapter 1, verse 10, I'll just quote a couple of verses to you. They were continuing in prayer. Acts 1.10, after they stumbled and recovered, Peter said, we better get some prayer meetings going around here. They were continuing in prayer. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they brought the holy church into steadfast prayer. Acts chapter 3, verse 1, James, Peter, and John, at the hour of prayer, they said, Jesus says, can you not wait with me one hour? They established the daily hour of prayer. They said, guys, we're not going to do this stumble thing again. We're establishing this in our life. And I love Acts 6, verse 4. Acts 6, verse 4, Peter and John, the serving of the tables, they says, no, we can't do that. We can't serve the tables. It's very valid. We have to be in the prayer because of our position in spiritual authority. We have to have the watch of the Lord. We cannot forsake this dimension of our life in God. We just stumbled some days ago. We can't do it again because of our the position that we're at in the body of Christ. Beloved, it's so essential, whatever level of leadership, the watch of the Lord is in your life. And they turned down the pressure to attend the tables to establish their own life in God in prayer. Where did they get that example? I believe we find the very example right here in Matthew 26. Go to verse 6. This very example. Peter, James, and John, three times in the garden, watch, watch, watch. They didn't. They all stumbled. There was one young woman in the early church that was so remarkable. Jesus says, I'm going to establish her as an example to the apostles and the leaders of the kingdom of God for the rest of redemptive history. This young single woman was so remarkable to the Lord. No special position of authority, no public ministry, but she had a heart of understanding and she was absolutely extravagant in her love for God. Her name is Mary of Bethany. Matthew chapter 26, verse 6. And Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. And a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil or perfume. She poured it on his head as he sat at the table. When his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much more and given to the poor. And when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, 
But me, you don't have with you always. But in pouring this fragrant oil upon my body, she did it for my burial. Verse 13, I assured, assuredly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. She is the example of which you apostles will stumble later on in the chapter. She is the picture. Now, this is a very interesting story. There's many facets to it, and obviously I just have a couple moments left. Number one thing that I want to point out is that Mary of Bethany was first introduced back in Luke chapter 10. And I'll just tell you the story. You all know it anyway. In Luke chapter 10, verse 38 to 42, she was established as a young woman who would sit at the feet of Jesus regardless of the domestic pressures to leave the place of waiting on the Lord. Her friends, her family, the pressures of the hour. She says, I will not leave the place of sitting before the Lord. I don't care what the rest of you are doing. I've seen him and I know who he is. She was established in her reputation, even in her youth as a single young woman, as a woman of devotion before the Lord in Luke chapter 10. That's how she's introduced in the gospel narrative. She's introduced as the woman of meditation, the woman who had such a heart for the Lord. She wouldn't move. She saw her need. I don't think she just loved the Lord more than everybody. I believe she saw her weakness. She said, I can't make it apart from this connectedness with the Lord. I can't do it. She had unique humility. She had a unique understanding of the necessity of waiting on the Lord in her own life. Not only did she have this extravagant love, but I believe she had a unique understanding of her own need, unlike the apostles. The apostles said, Satan's desired me. I'm not worried about it. I'm not falling. And he refused to watch. Mary said, I don't need any special warning. I'm a weak woman. I need you, God. I love you, but I need you. I need your presence or I'll never be able to walk faithful. That's how she's introduced. Her reputation is clear in the apostolic company. This, you know, this 120 that appeared in the upper room. There's this kind of company that have been de uh, devoted to Jesus. I believe her reputation was singular in her devotion. It's interesting that Jesus said that this event would be remembered forever. The only two people Jesus, by his own lips, ever honored because of their devotion and of their obedience was John the Baptist and this young single woman. Yes, he honored the Roman centurion and the Syrophoenician woman as unbelieving Gentiles that believed in his miracle power. He didn't honor them. He said, I'm amazed at their faith. He didn't honor their life in God. He honored the fact that they said, yeah, we believe you can heal even though we're outside the covenant. He said, I'm amazed at that. And I believe he was really amazed at the unbelief of the, of the Jewish nation. But he admits, I mean, he declares his amazement at the fact they believe he can heal. But it's different with John the Baptist and Mary. He says, these two have touched me. These two, is, this is what I'm trying to establish in the church. John the Baptist, the shining in the burning lamp, the ultimate example of the wise virgin with oil in the lamp, and Mary of Bethany. Now, Matthew has a unique distinctive in his gospel. Is that Matthew typically follows the chronological sequence of events as they took place. Typically, he tells the order of things, Luke is very committed to this, and Mark and John as well, uh, Luke more so than the others, but Matthew on seven or eight occasions, without any apology, he will uh, sacrifice the chronological sequence of the story in order, as many commentators have said, it's a very obvious trait, in order to bring a continuity in themes. Like if there's something about faith happening, there's three stories in a row about faith, though they were not exactly in order. He'll put three of them in a row to build the theme of faith. And he will sacrifice, in the telling of the story, the accurate con uh, uh, chronological sequence. He does this seven or eight times or, or more, seven or eight that I know about in the Gospel of Matthew, and possibly more. He said he would line themes together rather than the accurate history, and he doesn't claim to lay the history accurately. And I believe that J Matthew, as he records in Matthew 25, the parable of the oil... He goes right to a woman. And this event actually happened about a week earlier. But he tells the story out of sequence. All the others, Mark and John, put it in a trite order. Matthew puts it after the story of the lamps with oil. She is honored because of the issue of oil in her relationship to Jesus. And then the apostles at the Mount of Oil stumble. I believe that Matthew is purposefully lining out and joining together the theme of oil after the parable of the lamps with oil. 
He takes the story deliberately out of its sequence and puts it later, I believe, to identify it with Matthew 25. There's this woman, it says in verse 7. John 12, John tells us it's Mary of Bethany. It's clear who it is. Well, this woman, she has a, this flask of very costly fragrant oil. She has a flask of very, very costly perfume. John 12, again, that gives us a lot more detail. I mean, a number of other details. John 12 tells us it's 300 denarii worth of perfume. A denarii was a day's wages. 300 days wages, in other words, a year's salary. In our current economy, it would be about a $40,000 worth of perfume. The reason this perfume was so costly is that this perfume was basically found in India or a faraway land, and to have this volume of it was a very, very unique thing. And it was, re it was a reliable economic investment. She could... The value of this would stay consistent. She kept this sealed flask of about $40,000 worth of perfume. She kept it sealed because she could bargain with it. I mean, it, it was, I believe, her inheritance. We find from the narrative that the parents are, have died, the house belongs to Martha, and Mary receives $30,000, $40,000 worth of perfume. I believe she receives it as her inheritance. As Martha got the house... Mary got the perfume, and Lazarus, the little brother, he got raised from the dead, so he was happy at the end of the day anyway. She takes this perfume, this very costly perfume. She breaks the seal. Once you break the seal, you're committed to using it. Because the, the, uh, a certain amount of it is diluted in its intensity by the very breaking of the seal. She breaks the seal, and she pours it on the head of Jesus, and then she takes her hair, it says in John 12, and wipes the feet of Jesus with it. Very powerful, very, very powerful story. Turn to John 12, if you would. I just want to point one verse out to you, just as we're preparing to close. John chapter 12. Now, here's what I believe is happening. That Mary has been planning to do this for some time now. Some two years earlier, a very significant event took place in Luke chapter 7. I'll just quote it to you. In Luke chapter 7, a very significant event that I believe is crucial and essential to understanding the heart of Mary in this story as a picture of a wise virgin with oil. The outward oil she pours on Jesus is merely a token of the inward oil that Jesus talked about in the parable of the chapter earlier. All the subject of oil, I don't think it's an accident. I think Matthew's lining it up thematically on purpose. But back in Luke chapter 7... Jesus and the uh, apostolic company, uh, some of them went into a Pharisee's house and sat down. This prostitute, you know the story, breaks in. She falls down. She begins to weep and got, and she uh, uh, watered Jesus' feet with her tears. Then she kissed his feet. Then she washed his feet with her hair. She is down at his feet, gets her feet wet with tears, kissing his feet. This kid is so in love. And then washes her feet his feet with her hair. And we know that a woman's hair spoke of her beauty. She says, I don't care what everything is sacrificed at his feet. Just the very, just that your very feet is enough for me. Simon the Pharisee says, well, it's a very different story than this story, by the way. Some people confuse him. Luke 7 is several years earlier. And Jesus corrects the Pharisee. He says, I know what you're thinking and I know what's going on in your hand. You're, you're a mind. You should have treated me as a dignitary. When I came in, if I was a dignitary, in your estimation, you would have washed my feet. But you didn't wash my feet. You don't know who I am. You don't know who the guest is that's sitting at your table. The uncreated God sitting at his table in the form of a man. He has no idea that he doesn't wash his feet. So secondly, you should have kissed me in the greeting of affection that signifies your wholehearted reception of who I am. It's an official greeting, but it states... Everybody relax. This man is safe. This is what we esteem everything that he's about. You should have kissed me and given the signal to the whole household of who I am. And thirdly, you should have anointed my head with oil to refresh in me. You know, back in those days, they didn't take a shower every day with, you know, expensive shampoo. And the oil on the hair was a nice thing that you did as a sign of favor. And he says, this woman has done all three of them. She's washing my feet with her tears. She's kissing my feet, not even my cheeks. She was content to be my feet. And with the beauty, 
Her of her own hair, she's, she's washing me. He says, let me tell you, this woman's filled with love. He made the point of her love. And then he makes these very powerful words. He goes, Simon, you should have done this to me. And I believe the story became well known all over Galilee and all over the, uh, the sphere of Jesus. And this story hits the heart of Mary of Bethany. And she says, that was a token of love. Jesus said, the love of this woman... And Mary hides that in her heart. And she says, I have $40,000, my whole inheritance, my entire future. It's what I'm going to live on forever for, in terms of her life on the earth. And I believe the thought enters her mind. She goes, is this what Jesus called love? And he said, this is what you ought to have done. And I believe she begins to ponder in her heart because... Of her life of devotion, she seems like, and maybe there's one other or so, the only one besides his own mother who knows he's going to die. He tells the apostles, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And then when he says, I'm going to die, they go, what do you mean? He says, I'm going to die. I mean, the body of Christ has a certain disadvantage, being led so prominently by men. Guys, I'm going to die. I wonder what he's talking about. Mary picks up on it. She breaks in at the supper. It says at the supper in John 12. She breaks the flask, which is a commitment. I mean, once you break it, it's not going to have the same value. She takes the whole 40,000. She pours it on his head first, it says in John 12. And then on his feet, it says in Matthew 26. And she does exactly what the woman in Luke 7 did. But with oil instead of tears. She says, I'm wasting it on you. I'm wasting it on you. And the apostle said, how could you waste this? And Jesus says in verse 7... He says, leave her alone. Leave her alone. Look at the words that are so key. She has kept this for the day of my burial. The word kept this. She had determined to use this for some time now. And I believe it's when she heard the story of Luke 7 and Jesus said, you ought to have done this. She goes, I'll do it with more than tears. With all that my life represents, the memory of my parents, my inheritance, my future security, I will take it. And I will break it and I will pour it out upon him. I will waste myself upon him. And the story of the oil flowing on Jesus. It says in John 12, it fills the whole house. All of church history has been filled with the example of this woman's life. The whole house has been filled with her example. Jesus looks at the apostles and he says, this is the woman. This young woman. This is the one that will be remembered for her life of devotion. The whole house is filled. She's the example right in front of their eyes that Matthew, I believe, strategically brings forth of the wise virgin with oil. He uses the very symbolism of oil. I mean, it keeps it going. And then the very apostles on the Mount of Oil refuse to watch and they fall. Of course, they establish it. And then when it comes time to serve tables, oh, Peter says, no, I remember Mary. When Martha tried to get her to serve, uh-uh, I'm going to go. Now, I'm not against serving tables. But when you're called in that senior apostolic role and you know you're prayerless and you're in ministry, you better get your prayer life established. It's not an indictment against tables. It's an affirmation against using their time to pray. Let her alone. She's kept this for the day of my burial. And one more thought about Mary. This intense perfume for the next uh, uh, a day or two, as Jesus is walking, I mean, actually, the next day, the, the perfume, I mean, we're talking about the most expensive perfume in the earth, drenched with it. You could smell him for some distance coming. When he came, people would turn around, what's the fragrance, the most expensive perfume possibly in the world has drenched him. And guess what? Mary smells just like Jesus. Wherever she goes... You smell like him. She goes, that's what I intend to do. My life is his. I have no other life besides him. Beloved, I end with this. A lot of people are unlike Peter. They're willing to say, Peter didn't see that he was weak in flesh. Jesus said, you got a willing spirit, Peter, James, and John, but you don't think you're going to fall. You're weak in flesh. A lot of people have openly admit, well, I'm very weak, I'm very weak. It's a very necessary acknowledgement. It really is. That vulnerability and openness is necessary, but let me say this. It's not enough to be open about your weakness. Jesus said, because you're weak, watch therefore. Don't acknowledge you're weak and then refuse to watch. Because it's just a, it's a uh, inadequate acknowledge, acknowledgement. 
There's, it's kind of like the real thing to do today in the body of Christ to acknowledge your, your weakness. And I believe it's very important to do that. But in and of itself, it's not enough. At least the three apostles were blinded to their weakness and didn't watch. They were deceived by their own pride and refused to watch. But for you to say before God, I know I'm weak and refuse to watch, how foolish are you? At least Peter didn't see his weakness and refused to watch. If you truly see your weakness, watch therefore. Watch therefore. There's going to come a drama in the end time generation. We're going to be tempted with offense against God. Chapter 24. There's going to be a changing of ministries. Lots of lamps are going to go out. We need oil in our lamp. Chapter 25. And the issue of personal compromise and falling to temptation. We need to watch, therefore, that there's oil in our lamp. Are you going to be like Peter on the front end? Or are you going to be like Mary? Mary says, I don't have to wait till the crisis. She kept it in her heart all those days. She says, Lord, there's a day and an hour. If you say that's wise, I will give myself wholly unto you. Amen. Let's stand. Oh, Lord, we ask you. Make us like Mary, Lord. Lord, we admit our weakness, but how foolish, how empty of a confession to say we're weak but refuse to watch. How arrogant in another way to say I'm weak, but then refuse the Lord's counsel to watch. Peter boasted in his strength, and a lot of people boast in their weakness. Watch, therefore, beloved. Watch, therefore. Take that warning of your own confession and turn it into wisdom. Oh, Lord, Lord, we believe in the generation that's before us. We believe in your description of the generation that we believe is before us. I ask that you would give this church the wisdom to watch. Raise up leaders that watch. Raise up friendship group leaders. Raise up mothers and fathers and young people that watch before the Lord. Beloved, I want to call you forward for the third week in a row on the issue of the watch. Establishing the watch of the Lord in your life. If this is something the Lord's dealing with you about, I mean, we all need it more, but I'm just saying, you're saying in your heart, you know, I need to really establish this as a time priority. I'm tired of excuses that I could get my friends to agree with. That it baloney. I want to be like Mary. I'm going to be the kind of person, this single, young woman, had no public ministry. She's only known because she was a lover. She said, if one thing happens, I'm going to be a lover. I don't care about the other stuff. I'm a lover of God.